You may have heard about the incredible, illuminating beginnings at Netflix. Things were going fairly well. They were disrupting Blockbuster, and they had grown to 110 staff by 2001. Then the first bubble burst, and all the venture capital money disappeared. Reed Hastings, the founder, sat down with his HR director, Patty McCord, and they had to make the difficult decision to lay off a third of the staff. They examined all of the results of the 110 staff and then created two piles, one with creative and collaborative, exceptional workers, and the other with good workers, but not exceptional. They proceeded to lay off 40 staff and then waited for the fallout. They expected morale to tank and the remaining 80 staff to become bitter, left with more work at the same salaries. Instead, something incredible and unexpected happened. Morale improved. It became more exciting, inspiring, and even fun to work at Netflix. There were fewer people doing more work, yet having greater success. One morning, when Reed picked Patty up for their carpool into the office, Patty turned to Reed and said, Is this like being in love? (laughs) Patty and Reed had discovered, quite to their surprise, the principle of talent density. Welcome to The Behaviorist with Work Wisdom where we help you adopt high-performance mindsets, behaviors, communication, and culture. I'm your host, Kedron Crosby. Our intention for the Behaviorist podcast is to share accessible, concrete practices that you can weave into your whole life to begin a shift toward joy and meaningful achievement. Today, we're focusing on the principle of talent density, the concept that talented people make one another more effective, and that leaders can build teams that drive toward the collective potency of talent within a team. Today, we have our friend Mike McKenna, CEO of Tenfold, Tenfold, joining uh, Vanessa Filbert, CEO of CAP and Associate at Work Wisdom, and me to talk about this concept of talent density. It's such a joy to be talking with you both about this important idea today. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Yeah. This is like the dream team right here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've always I've always looked for a topic yes. that the three of us could uh, join in on. I'm nervous because, you know, we get to talking a lot, the three of us. We do. So, Adam we'll might do be editing. And yeah. I, this will be a podcast in three parts, which is an hour long. <laughs> yes, the series. Uh, talent density is fascinating, yet it's also simple. Maybe the concept is new to some of us, um, but most people, upon learning about it, have some lived experience that affirms that it's this smart, long-term method for building an exceptional team or culture. So, Mike, I'm wondering about your own experience. You know, as a member of a team, can you think of a time that you experienced high talent density as a teammate where you were surrounded by the best and that actually catapulted your good work into a whole new stratosphere? What comes to your mind? 
Absolutely. The first job that I had right out of grad school was with a, a nonprofit in D.C. that was focused on childhood hunger. And we had uh, this incredible team that came together right at the launch of a new campaign. The organization had been doing a lot of grant making for decades, had done a lot of good work, but then recognized their impact wasn't what they wanted it to be. Mm. And so they launched this new campaign uh, and the focus of it was to really end childhood hunger and to do that through partnership. And so they brought together this group of, of folks who were really leading on the program side of the campaign, this nationwide effort, and uh, a lot of people who had different backgrounds, but we were all really animated by that idea. And work was fun. The work was hard. You know, yeah. there was sort of gentle competition since different uh, team members were working on different uh, childhood hunger campaigns in different states. Mm -hmm. So there was this great exchange of ideas of what's working here, what's working there. Um, everybody, of course, looking for that affirmation from from leadership about some of the innovation and progress that was happening in those campaigns. Um, but it really set me up for this uh, expectation wherever I worked. You know, I wanted to feel that magic again. Mm -hmm. um, and there thankfully have been other jobs since then where that has happened. Sometimes it took a little bit of engineering to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Um, and as you move up in leadership, you you have a, an opportunity and kind of a responsibility to create that magic. But I knew what it felt like. I knew sort of when you arrived there because I had felt that with that first team. Mm, so good that it gave you mm -hmm. the appetite for what it was like to be surrounded by stunning colleagues. How about you, Vanessa? Can you think of a time that you were a part of a talent dense team yeah I mean I think I can think of probably two distinct times but I'll do something that's not work related um, I'm going to go back to like um, pursuing my master's degree so um, I was part of a cohort experience and so it's this you know 10 or 12 of us who are kind of in it for the long haul who are all working full-time all bringing different experiences into the work and into the learning um, but just thinking about that environment of how um, we kind of saw what glittered and sparkled about each other. Mm -hmm. Did a lot of encouraging along the way to get to the finish line of graduation and, and acquiring that master's degree. But I remember being a part of that group and how it, it does do that thing where it's like you don't want to not be your best self because those folks know that you can be. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And it gives you, a, I think, just a little push to like not rest on your laurels and just say, I've got to bring my A game because this team deserves that and they expect it. And I think there's this interesting thing about what you expect, um, but what people are expecting of you. So it feels reciprocal mm -hmm. if it's in a, I think if it's, if it's the right kind of, if it's not, I think if it's competitive, it doesn't feel reciprocal. It feels um, disconnected. But when it does, I think it's, there's a lot of um, just synergy mm -hmm. in that space. Greater than the sum of the Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So good. Yeah. yeah. So we've all tasted it. Yeah. We've and we know what it's like and and we can think about what that means to to try and build our teams. Mm -hmm. And also that. when you're not the best at it. Like when you're the person who maybe isn't contributing the best yeah. in that moment. Yeah. I'm sure I can think of some times when that was true for me too. For me too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For sure. Well, so in No Rules Rules, this book that Reed Hastings wrote, um, which really describes the incredible methods of building a culture at Netflix, he talks about the five reasons why it's beneficial to embrace talent density, where you only really have stunning colleagues. He says that adequate, in contrast to stunning team members, sap man managers' energy 
so that they have less time for high performers. He also says that adequate team members reduce the quality of group discussions, thereby decreasing the team IQ. Um, Unfortunately, they force others to find ways to work around them, which reduces efficiency. They also then drive staff out who are seeking excellence. And finally, uh, allowing adequate staff to stay on the team shows the rest of the team that you as the leader accept mediocrity, uh, thereby multiplying the negative impact. So nobody likes to discuss this. And we know how important talent density is, but the reality is that without having a constructive framework to discuss this and manage it, Um, an off-board, adequate, but not stunning staff, our teams will never achieve the benefits of high talent density. It will never feel, like Patty said, like being in love Mm -hmm. at work. So some ways the talent density is achieved is through candor and non-blaming, as well as extremely generous severance packages for those who are moved off the team. Um, so I, what I'm wondering is, have, have you ever been in the position of having to help an adequate performer move on to their next chapter outside of their organization? I know this is very difficult to talk about. What advice would you give to the work wisdom community who's listening um, to help them manage the relationship in a constructive way while also achieving that talent density. Mike, how about you? Do you have any guidance for our listeners about how to do this in a constructive way? Yeah, this is one of the hardest things about leadership role. Um, It's certainly in the case where someone is not performing up to par, there's going to be a fair process um, that usually starts with conversation and and then moves into coaching and then ultimately sort of through the the progressive disciplinary process. Um, and that applies as well for just an adequate performer when we know, you know, we've been clear what the, the expectations are when we are trying to lean into the organizational values. And when those things still aren't happening, that gap persists. And, and I love that framing uh, from Authentic Communication, your book uh, about minding the gap, because I think that's really effective in these conversations, because there is a gap between adequate performance and outstanding performance. Um, I think understanding that and communicating this to the team members, it's not coming from a place of disregard for them. It's really coming from a place of, prioritizing what we need to achieve as a team and for mission driven organizations like the one that the ones that Vanessa and I leave a lead the responsibility is great right we have people who are struggling that we're serving and so we need to be at a state of high performance to deliver on that promise for people and when we're not there are consequences. Yeah. yeah. You know, we tend to think about talent density in the for-profit sector, but mm. I think in the nonprofit sector, the stakes are even higher. Um, the, the donors, they want you to be good stewards of every penny, um, and the stakes are so high because you're really seeking to ameliorate poverty and change lives. Um, Vanessa, do you have any advice for our listeners about how to move someone um off the team i feel like three points maybe that i think are important one is that the leader this that last point that you made about um this idea that it shows the rest of the team Mm -hmm. 
that you're willing to accept mediocrity is such a huge consequence as you're trying to steward and create culture, mm -hmm. especially if you're trying to create excellent culture, right? And I think the balance here is, is that oftentimes leaders um, are working with those people to try to clarify, to coach, and to care. And I can't share that with other mm -hmm. people on the team. So you've got to trust that I'm doing that mm -hmm. in the middle of this process, which I think is hard for the leader. It's, it's a weight of like this perceived idea that folks don't think I know what's happening or that I'm not aware of this kind of adequate behavior. Mm -hmm. even or that though you're not taking their feedback. Back seriously, seriously. Yeah. right? So I would say the first piece of advice that I think Mike and I have benefited from is having a safe space outside of the organization to process mm -hmm that this difficult experience with someone else to say, this is how I'm coaching, this is my concern, this is where I've gotten clarity about what I need in the role, and just someone to help support you in that. Because sometimes it's not about giving them getting more advice. It's just a safe space to say, yeah, I see that you're doing it with the right intention. Because you feel like your intentions are questioned in that space as the mm -hmm. leader who has to, to work through that. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the other piece for me that I've, I've gotten more clear about, and I've had some situations where I really care about people, and I want people to know that even in this kind of situation, right? I want you to know that I care about you enough, but I also care about this team and the work that we're doing, and that um, because I'm having this conversation doesn't mean I care less. Yeah, mm -hmm. It means I care more because there's more that either you could be bringing to the team or somewhere else that you could be flourishing and growing, and maybe it's not here. And that is a hard space to navigate with someone. Um, but for me, I'm really, I've gotten more clear about understanding what, what we're looking for. Because when I was listening to you all, I was thinking about adequate is not terrible, right? Mm -hmm. We want people to meet the basic job functions. Mm -hmm. I think it's about creating a conversation that says, but we're striving for excellent mm -hmm. or we're striving to whatever your winning aspiration is, right? And, and it's helping people understand that, because I can imagine, and I've had some experiences where people are like, but I'm doing the basic job, like I'm doing what is asked of me on this job description. But there's a spirit in which we're looking for you to, to translate that experience that maybe isn't meeting the mark that is really hard for some people to like tangibly understand. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to put words to that piece where it's just like, yeah, you're getting the job done on the technical side, but there's, some, there, there's not magic mm -hmm. yeah. happening. And that's hard to navigate in a conversation with someone who just maybe doesn't feel that and see that. So it might feel very punitive. But I think we're trailing, really trying to release them to a place of like, if this is not the greatest thing where you can sparkle at mm -hmm. your best, then we'll move. You know, I think there's that moving on piece. But I think the responsibility for us is to make sure we know and how to articulate what's off the job description that mm -hmm. we're looking for. Mm -hmm. And that regular feedback loop yep. is so important. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of organizations where feedback is not happening mm -hmm. on a routine basis. It's not happening with candor. Mm -hmm. It's maybe happening at the performance review and then there's these sort of gotcha moments that really are counterproductive. And so I think having that culture, being intentional about teaching other leaders in the organization how to have those conversations, mm -hmm. teaching the team members how to receive feedback, and that's you know up and down different levels of the organization. You need to be able to receive that feedback as a leader as well. And I think another piece that's really important when we talk about if there is a gap there and sort of adequate to stunning, it's how was the goal setting process mm -hmm. happening? Mm -hmm. I remember in a position I had where team members responded to that and they said, oh, well, I'm just X, you know, naming their position. I don't have goals. Everything's the same every year. 
And it's like, well, there's no scenario where that's true. And I believe that the employee felt that because that's what had been modeled for them in previous conversations around goal setting. But there's always this opportunity for improvement and for growth, regardless of position in the organization, your years of experience in that, there's always that opportunity. And so how are we helping to name that? Are we helping then to support the person in achieving that goal once they've been able to set that and identify it? And I think that really can help through this process of getting someone to a place where it's shifting from adequacy to something quite better than that. But I think that's an interesting like uh, indicator light for a leader is to say, if you start to see people on your team who no longer aspire to learn, who don't have goals, who can't even think through that, I mean, I think that's a big light shining for you to say, wow, we've hit we've hit a wall here. Mm-hmm. Um, and will you will that person continue to evolve with the organization if they've already arrived at everything they feel like they can contribute? That's a, I think that's a fair reflection. And that's probably the opening the door to that conversation of is this still the right fit? fit yeah. Mm-hmm. And and what might something else look like for you yeah. and can yeah. we help you get there yeah. yeah i really like the word that you used vanessa releasing them um it's such a gentle word and i think sometimes as leaders it helps us to think about that there's a next chapter for that person mm-hmm. where they are going to be stunning mm-hmm. here they might be adequate and it might be the circumstances it might be what the work is but we want to believe that they can go someplace where it's a better fit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to be willing to share that. I know I had an experience where I made a decision to change roles, went into something different. Um, probably on the very first day I knew it wasn't quite right, mm-hmm. you know, but I was like, I'm going to figure it out because I'm going to lean into my grit, right? And I'm just going to push through. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then six months later, I was like, you know, Every lunch, eating eating Rita's custard, you know, with sprinkles. Sad. It was sad. It was sad. It was a sad time. And I filling your heart. No endorsement to Rita's, but sure, we'll take free Rita's. Um, But I remember that season, and then I made a decision to say I've got to release myself from this experience because I just was not. I wasn't a good mom. I wasn't a good wife. I wasn't a good person. I was so kind of overly saturated in the sorrow of that space Mm -hmm. that I couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then when I did, I had no backup plan, which I'd never done before. But when I did that, I was free to explore the next chapter mm-hmm. in a way that I probably wouldn't have been if I would have forced myself to stay in there because it it was, you know, I was doing what I felt was adequate for my family, which was providing something. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah I love thinking about this, not just for our teams as we're, as we're leading, but as uh, members yeah. of these teams and what kind of density are we contributing? What's our ratio um, right. for the good or for the bad? Um, so at Work Wisdom over the years, we have talked and written extensively about how we are emotionally contagious. Professor Will Phelps at the University of South Wales in Australia gives us some very real scenarios that help us understand how contagion impacts concrete results at work in talent density. So in his research, he created teams of four college students each and then added in one actor to each team. So some of the teams had an actor who played the role of slacker, feet up on the desk, kicking back, looking at his phone. Other teams got a jerk, um, saying incredibly rude things. The remaining teams got a pessimist. So what he found was that the existence of just one slacker or jerk or pessimist 
reduced the effectiveness of the entire team by 30 to 40 percent, one person. And the pessimists actually diminished the results even more than the slackers and the jerks. So what I'm wondering for you two is when you're thinking about talent density and building teams that are talent dense, um, does this research surprise you? You know, which of these three types diminish the outcome the most in your opinion, the slacker, the jerk, the pessimist? What are you thinking? Vanessa, what are you thinking when you hear about this research? Does it surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me. But for me, it's the pessimist. And that's because maybe I'm a two on the Enneagram, right? So I like this idea of like hopeful help and, you know, we're going to figure it out. And I try to show up in a pretty optimistic way. Um, So when I think about this idea of a pessimist, what it does for me is that one of the things that I'm trying to protect the most, I think, is hope. Mm. Yeah. So when you have someone who's kind of actively always in that space of being a pessimist, it's like it's killing my hope. It's just killing my hope. Yeah. Um, so that makes me probably the most concerned because I think it also has um, has staying power on a team, you know, because it's, it's speaking sticky. of emotional, emotional contagion. Yeah, it yeah. Is. it's contagious mm-hmm. and it creates groupthink and it does a lot of things. So that for me is the one that makes me the, no, the most nervous when I think about it from a leadership perspective. I think the slacker and the jerk, those offenses seem obvious. And they're the things that I, most teams are going to say, those are not norms that we're willing to you know to deal with. Um, but the pessimist sometimes can be um, disguised in critical feedback mm-hmm. that we want to get and we should be getting, mm-hmm. but sometimes can also not be nice. Um, so I th- think there's a balance of that, of figuring out how do we create a space for critical feedback right. that isn't just like pessimism in its not most helpful fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, with the pessimist in the research, they said by the end of the experiment, the other members of the team had their heads on the table depressed right um because the <laughs> pessimist and that was an actor you know yeah. but that was the impact of this actor on the rest of the team i think f- the research doesn't surprise me at all um the slacker is one that i think can be sort of regulated most easily by peers mm-hmm. i think jerk and pessimists get a little bit harder a uh, jerk usually will need some type of intervention from somebody mm-hmm. higher up and i think that can be really uh, detrimental to creating psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Um, in my experience mm-hmm. in different workplaces, the jerk tends to be a guy and it tends to rub uh, female colleagues uh, the wrong way in ways that actually impinges on their ability to be their best self and be the leaders. And that's something that I've looked out for. It's just like, I'm not going to tolerate that. I want, yeah. I want everybody on the team to feel like they can bring their best selves to work. And so if there is that sort of gendered element to it, we're going to talk about it and we're going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. I think with the pessimist, um, it definitely stifles creativity and and we need that. And so like, if you bring up an idea, we've adopted the norm rough draft Mm -hmm. and it it really has taken on, um, sort of a norm within our organization that I think has been really helpful because Mm -hmm. we can say whatever the crazy thing that follows is without feeling like someone's going to shoot it down immediately. And so, uh, prior to that, we would sometimes have conversations where the response to the idea was, well, the problem with that is, or that mm-hmm. won't work because, mm-hmm. and, and there's a need for some of that sort of risk management yeah. thinking and, and 
identifying some of the pitfalls that could follow, but you can't start there because then people are like, Ugh, I don't want to offer that. Yeah. But if you start with, hey, everybody, rough draft, then it's like a, a signal to everybody like, we're going to let this, we're going to play with this idea yeah. for a while yeah. and see where it goes. And we're not going to start from this place of negativity mm-hmm. and pessimism because that's not what we said is our goal here. Our goal and one of our core values, in fact, is innovation. Mm-hmm. So let's celebrate these ideas. They may not work and that's okay, but yeah. we need to at least have the space where we can explore it. And so I think the long-term damage, the pessimist is the one who causes the most. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two are problematic, but there's sort of different ways to deal with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's about setting how we set norms on our team about how we're going to manage those moments when they arise. And, you know, having just clear and direct conversations with people and giving folks feedback about like that feedback was really helpful or maybe that feedback, you know, could have been more helpful if you would have said two more sentences with it. You know, I think it's just, you know, people just have to learn how to sandwich some of that feedback and and know that the goal is to innovate, to create, to problem solve. And we want to start from a place that feels like we're all welcomed. You know, it's how we set the table. We want to mm-hmm. set the table in a way that like, yeah, if someone on a team feels like that's one of my superpowers is really... Um, managing the risk and thinking critically, that's great. But that there's a line between that and pessimism. Mm-hmm. And we've just got to manage that line. Yeah, I think also if we know this research, we might we might turn the dial down mm-hmm. on our own pessimism <laughs> when we're right. showing up um, in a meeting. So maybe maybe one of the ways to reduce the diminished results is by just sharing this this research too. And, and I think this has been a really hard year, right? So yeah. All of us are dealing with certain degrees yeah. of pessimism, just mm-hmm. like baseline. And and so we need to own that. And especially in leadership, I think it's really critical to have a space where you're sort of processing some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just the daily news can be contributing to like sort of a negative outlook mm-hmm. and, and diminishing some level of hope. Yeah. And so uh, we have to do some of that work ourselves to make sure that it's not showing up. And I, I have seen it myself when I come into a meeting with some of that, you know, maybe it was just looking at the latest pandemic data or, or reading something about climate change, or, or maybe it was uh, something related to the latest numbers with our industry, with housing, you know, we do have a crisis that we're trying to navigate through. So am I bringing that with me? Is that how I'm showing up? Because I know mm-hmm. it's going to have right. a contagious effect on the team. And and I need people like, you know, Vanessa can be in some of those meetings with me, especially our community collaboratives. And so we have that safe space where it's like, you know, What's up? Are you all right? right. Checking in. <laughs> Change your um, face. Or like fix your face, you know? So, and then it's like, yeah, that was a good prompt that helped me sort yeah. of uh, pull it back to a place yeah. where I'm able to, to bring more optimism uh, to the conversation. I think it's a fair thing because I was just thinking about, you know, slacker, jerk, pessimist, and we talk about it for the team, but leaders can show up in this space mm-hmm. and how dangerous, you know, and I've been there before where I'm not in a good energy space and maybe I'm showing up like a jerk about something or, you know, I may be coming in more pessimistic because I'm managing all the weight of all the other things that are happening in the organization. Um, and it's really important for my team to have the same access to me to say, change your face. What's going on here? Should we take a break? You know, um, we were in a meeting last week and we were in our conference room that had a lot of stuff in it. And I was like, maybe we should just go to my office. And then they were like, oh, it's up to you. You know, it seemed like a small thing. But one of my teammates said to me, um, I think you like your office space better. Let's go there. And it was a small thing, right? But in order for me to not have this energy about how I felt like the room was doing too much, they were looking at me and saying, she's going to be her best self. Mm-hmm. 
if we just move to the other office. So mm-hmm. Let's do that. But that comes with building psychological safety that people who are on your team can share that with you yeah. and you can share it with them. Yeah. And it still feels like I'm cared about. And they, they're telling me because they care about me and this work is too important mm-hmm. not to say something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think a little bit about the authenticity paradox that I think both of you read in the 2020 class of the Work Wisdom <laughs> Academy that was part of the curriculum. Um, this idea that we want to be authentic, but we also recognize as leaders that when we are authentic in a way where we're showing up as pessimists or out of control, we lose our followers and they stop uh, believing in us. So really the way to show up is with a plan. And so the answer to the authenticity paradox is, yeah, you can be feeling pessimistic, but if you're showing up with a plan, um, you're not losing your followers. Mm -hmm. Well, so at Netflix, they really have these three ways of managing to achieve talent density. So the first is that they hire the very best in the marketplace and they work hard to find the very best and recruit them. Secondly, they pay at the top of the market for this talent. In fact, it's above the top of the market to retain them. And then the third is that they coach to get rid of the undesirable behavior or the merely adequate talent. So basically, They say that a great culture cannot be created without first solidly establishing this foundational principle of talent density. After you have the talent density, then you can move on to the radical candor. Then you can move on to the creativity. But this is the foundation. So I've been thinking about other types of density as well. So, um, you know, could there be other types of density that are important in our organizations, in our cultures? Maybe it's not the kind of creative or collaborative talent density that they seek at Netflix, but some other version of density. So, Mike, what are you thinking? When you're thinking about tenfold, you're thinking about your work in, in housing, in this community, is there a different kind of density that you think about that you're trying to attract and and retain? Yeah. One thing that we've been reflecting on a lot is one of our other core values being integrity. And so what does that look like? We have had uh, a year full of of change um, in addition to the the pandemic response, you know, tenfold came out of this union of Tabor Community Services and and Lancaster Housing Opportunity Partnership. So two separate organizations with longstanding histories, identities, work cultures, um, and incredible contributions to the community. And so when we're navigating through that, the integrity piece is really important for team members. Mm-hmm. And we, as results of this merger, have seen the talent density for this work has, has increased. Um, but we also need to have that integrity with our donors and supporters because they have believed in this mission for a long time and they have a stake in seeing the outcome. For our community partners, you know, we, we've made this pledge that there's a, a value proposition here in the merger, and, and are they seeing that? Um, and I think with our, our leadership, of course, you know, leading from this place of integrity, and are we showing that really high level, sort of the average integrity per person on our team mm-hmm. has to be at a really high level if we're going to lean in. And I think the last stakeholder group is really the most important, and that's the people that we serve. So people 
exiting homelessness, trying to overcome homelessness, people struggling with rental housing and trying to find a more stable rental environment, folks who are trying to buy their first home and are putting their you know personal assets on the line for that journey, they need to be able to trust that what we say we can offer, we will, and that the experience that we offer them is one that feels like they're being appreciated, that they're being seen, that they're being treated with respect and dignity. Um, and that comes from a place of us as a team practicing that that value of integrity. So mm-hmm. um, there are also times where talent density and integrity density aren't necessarily in alignment with each other. Yeah. You can have someone who's perhaps a high performer at a technical aspect of their job, but there may be some gaps when it comes to the integrity and it's eroding trust that I may have with them or other members of the team may have with them. And that's one of those areas where it's, it's really not negotiable. There's probably not as much coaching that's going to be possible in that scenario. Um, it may just be that this isn't the right fit and that we still want to see those individuals land well and have opportunities elsewhere, not really trying to, to end on a, on a negative note with them, but just knowing that that's such a core piece of how we're trying to advance the work that if that's not in alignment, it's probably not going to be a long-term fit. Yeah, adequate integrity instead of stunning mm-hmm. integrity okay yeah Vanessa how about you when you're thinking about your work either at cap or maybe with some other organizations you're involved in is there a different type of density that you're trying to hone yeah I think for cap what I'm trying to really get clear about is um, getting more dense in expertise mm-hmm you know, I feel like we have a responsibility um, to do our work, to do the research, to weave in the practical lived experience of our own lives or our customers to really say, we can talk to you um, both intelligently and compassionately about the issue that we are trying to solve for the community. So I'm leaning on my team to say, are you the expert in your thing and your thing and your thing? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a density there that I'm just trying to build up expertise because mm-hmm. I'm also realizing um, it allows me to become more of the expert in the maker space where I get to innovate and vision cast because I don't have to be the experts in the other spaces of the other team members. So this idea of density around expertise is something that I'm still navigating through, but I'm getting more clear about why it's important. Mm. Um, And I I would say the other density part for me is hope. Um, Because it has been a really difficult year, um, people are tired. Mm -hmm. There's a fatigue um, that I think is is rocking people to sleep or rocking people them to adequacy of just getting it done as they can because they're just tired. Um, and what I'm realizing is is that you know people are working hard, but I really want to protect the place where people get to work more impactfully mm-hmm. um, and not just a lot of hours and it feels hard and everything's hard about it. But I'm I'm trying to create this density around can we get clear about what it is to be your most impactful. Mm. self mm-hmm. um, because that's how we level up mm. I think as an organization and as a team so those would be the two that like if I can secure hope and let people get re-energized by that and protect that hope and that there way, there is a way forward for tomorrow um, I think that's part of my responsibility is to, to, to create that density but to protect it mm-hmm. really Love beautiful that. well this has been a joy Thank you both, um, Mike and Vanessa, for being part of this movement of helping world changers enhance their individual and collective team performance. 
Thank you listeners for downloading The Behaviorist, and we hope you'll subscribe. Please reach out to us through our website, workwisdomllc.com, where you can enjoy Work Wisdom Press and productions. You can ask questions. You can contact us to make suggestions of topics you'd like to explore in further episodes. So we'll leave you with some one-minute wisdom from Reed Hastings. The more talent density you have, the less process you need. The more process you create, the less talent you retain. Mic drop. Mm-hmm.